Our scripture reading this morning comes from Hebrews 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all God's house. For Jesus had been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Thanks be to God. We uh, are grateful to have um, interns here, or well, intern uh, here. Uh, grateful for Kenan uh, to be able to be a part of us, um, to be able to come and preach, um, not just as a practice for his future ministry and whatever calling that may be, but for his ministry that is here in this place. And so Kenan is uh, um, coming to preach for us this morning. Thanks, Kenan. Good morning, everybody. I want to start with talking about fangirling. Um, fangirling. Um, the noun is pretty self-explanatory, a fangirl, a girl who's a fan. Um, but the younger people in this room might know that it can also be a verb. Um, does anyone want to give a definition of fangirling? Yep, yep. That's, that's an entire cult. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. They could be the definition in and of itself. Uh, I would say that fangirling is loving someone or something to the point of obsession. And uh, if you don't know, it is also a gender neutral noun, even though it's called fangirling. Uh, my brother uses it to refer to his love of new movie trailers. Uh, he always fangirls and starts researching immediately. The term was coined in the early 20th century, and one of the first groups that it was applied to was Elvis fans, Elvis Presley. Elvis's fangirls were so passionate, so obsessed, that many times at his concerts, it was reported that the audience, the band, even Elvis himself could not hear his singing because they were screaming so loudly throughout the entire thing. People were baffled. It was one of the first times that something like this had happened. And theorists proposed that these girls were so infatuated with Elvis that their brains were literally registering him as their lover. One girl um, who was at a concert is quoted as having said, we screamed when he came out. I didn't know I was going to yell and scream. I'd never done that in my whole life. <laughs> it was spontaneous. You know, his wiggle and that leg going. All of us started screaming when he did that. That level of obsession, which, as we know, did not end with Elvis fans, is something that is part of human nature, in my opinion. I think that all of us can have a tendency 
toward that level of obsession. But when we do have that, we are in danger of idolatry. The first commandment in the Ten Commandments is to not have any other gods beside God. And the second is similar. Do not make idols. But soon after receiving these commands directly from the Lord, the Israelites made a golden idol and worshipped it. And that may seem ridiculous to us. And we may never say, we may say that we would never build a statue using millions of dollars and worship it. But that doesn't mean that we're less prone to idolatry. We may not be tempted to put statues before God, but many times we are tempted to put people before God. We see celebrities. We see social media influencers. We see mentors, pastors, family. And we have this tendency to put them before God in our lives. And these people are not bad, especially family is not a bad thing. But we do make a mistake if they take the place of God and hurt our relationship with God in the way that we relate with them. And I was asking myself this week, why do we have this tendency to find lesser gods to replace God with? And I think the issue is tangibility. As creatures, as physical creatures, we like tangible things. We like to celebrate and to even worship things that we can touch and feel and see. It's hard for us to have a relationship with this God who we cannot physically touch and feel and see and hear from. Sometimes we can. But most of the time, we'd rather have our deepest relationships with the people around us who we can see. We want to get our life advice from people who will audibly talk back to us every time we ask. We love tangible things, and that's why we search for people other than God. And this is the kind of idolatry that we see in our passage today. The Hebrew audience seems to have been idolizing Moses and putting him on the same level or even higher than Jesus in their hearts. And the author wants to address that problem. So we are going to turn to that passage now. And if you're here, you were here last week, you know that Mark talked about Hebrews 2, 5 through 18. Yep, got the verses. Um, and in that passage, especially at the end, we saw the implications of Jesus's coming to earth, specifically that he died for us. He freed us from slavery to fear and to the devil. And we are now part of God's family as a result of that. So as we turn to chapter three, we begin to look at the implications of what it means to be part of God's family. So let's read those first two verses again. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who is faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses also was faithful in all of God's house. 
So, as I said earlier, this is drawing out the implications of last week's sermon, which is why we start with therefore. The author's basically saying, in light of all that Jesus has done, in light of his death, his freeing us from our slavery to Satan, and making us part of God's family, consider him. Consider Jesus. And let this strike you as a little bit odd, considering that the first two chapters of Hebrews is all about Jesus as well. We've already been considering Jesus. Uh, He doesn't need to call our attention back to him because our attention's been on him the whole time. So I think there's something specific that he wants us to think about. We've been thinking about Jesus in chapter 1 as the Son, as the ultimate messenger, in chapter 2 as the new covenant and the new Savior. But now we need to think and consider and reflect upon Jesus as the apostle and high priest. And apostle and high priest together in one person is a very rare and odd combination. Uh, Another way you could think of apostles is prophets. Um, Both are people who would take God's messages and deliver them to the people. A high priest, on the opposite end, would work on behalf of the people before God. And so when you have someone who's both an apostle and a high priest, you have someone doing both roles. He's a spokesperson and a representative of both God and man at the same time. So imagine for a second that we're in a courtroom, and we'll say the defendant is sitting over here, the plaintiff, the accuser, is right here, the judge can be somewhere over there. And everything about this courtroom scene seems normal, until you notice that there's only one lawyer. How does that work? Well, because of a mix-up, the lawyer is actually representing both the defendant and the plaintiff at the same time. And I'm pretty sure that uh, case would get thrown out for a conflict of interest. But if it were to happen, it would be ridiculous to see this lawyer rushing back and forth, taking turns on each side, trying to represent each side well. And this is kind of the odd relationship that we have when we combine one person into apostle and high priest. One person representing God before men and men before God. And like I said, this is a rare occurrence, but it wasn't unheard of. Because when the Hebrews would have thought of this high responsibility, they would have thought of at least one other name, Moses. That's who would come to their head. Because no, Moses was not technically an apostle or a high priest, but he was a prophet. He did bring messages from God to the people, and he did advocate for men before God. He did make sure to have God relent from his wrath and apologize for God's people. So, when you combine the roles of high priest and apostle, according to the author, you have one of the heads of God's household. 
Moses and Jesus were both apostles and high priests, and thus they were both heads of God's household. And that's why the rest of this passage draws out that metaphor of what does it mean to be a head of God's household and seeing Jesus and Moses both in those roles to which they were both faithful. This, uh, this passage reminds me of one of my favorite scenes in the movie Les Miserables. And to be clear, I'm referring specifically to the best version, which is the 2012 version with Hugh Jackman and Anne Hathaway. And Anne Hathaway the best version. And the scene that, I, that comes to mind is when we are introduced to the innkeeper through the song, Master of the House. And in this song, the, off, the most repeated line is, everybody loves the landlord, showing how much this innkeeper has charmed his clientele. But as the audience, we see what his clients don't that he is stealing from them and ripping them off and overcharging them at every turn. And so maybe this, path, maybe this scene shouldn't come to mind when I read this passage, because uh, it's kind of the opposite. Neither... I didn't want to see this developed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Neither Jesus nor Moses are unfaithful like that innkeeper. They both, we are, bo we are told that they are both faithful to their roles. They are much better masters of the house. And so I want to make it clear, this passage is not dunking on Moses. Instead, what we see is another of the, of the comparisons that we've seen throughout Hebrews, good and better. In chapter one, we saw that the angels and the prophets were good, but that the son is better. In chapter two, we saw that the covenant brought by the angels was good, but the message, the gospel, the covenant brought by the Son is better. The 1998 version of Les Miserables is good, but the 2012 one is better. Wow. <laughs> Liam Neeson is good, but Hugh Jackman is better. <laughs> um, but now we are seeing... <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So Moses was good, we see in this passage, but Jesus is better. And this is what we need to be careful of, because the author is addressing the idolatry that is happening in the heart of the Hebrews. They are elevating Moses to the level of Jesus. And we can do that too with people that we see as very influential, spiritual leaders, politicians, whatever the case. But we should know that Jesus is the only one worthy of our worship. And the rest of the passage tells us why. Let's continue reading from verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later, but Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Oh. 
Moses was a good servant, but Jesus is better. And the first reason we're given is that the builder of the house deserves more honor than the building itself. And we don't always follow this principle. Um, For example, if you go to the Eiffel Tower or if you see it online, you don't usually say, wow, Stephen Sylvestre, Emile Nouguier, and Maurice Coughlin are amazing. <laughs> exactly. I had to Google those names, and I had to read them off right here, um, which I think proves my point. We should be honoring the creators above the creation. They're the reason the creation exists. And so the question we ask ourselves, why does Jesus deserve the honor due to the builder of the house? But we had that answer given to us in the first verse of Hebrews, where it says that Jesus is the one through whom the world was created. He is the builder of the house. And if he is the builder, and God is the builder in the next verse, then we can safely say that Jesus is God. And I think it's safe to say as well that Moses can't compete with that. We are told that Moses was a faithful servant in God's house who, whose role it was to testify to the things spoken of later, which we can infer, we can intuit, was the gospel and its teachings. Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is the son. And you don't need a master's degree in Roman households to know that the son was given more honor than the servant. And we're told we are God's household, which means that it is our role to make sure that we are honoring God and the son above the servant. So I titled this sermon, Who's Your Moses? Because I want that to be the question we ask ourselves. Who is it that is receiving the glory and the honor and the worship that I owe God? Who is it that I get offended for when they are insulted more than anyone else? Who is it that I spend all of my time with? Who is it that I go to for life decisions? And if that answer isn't Jesus, we need to repent. We need to reorder our household and make sure that he is the son. We need to let Jesus be the God of our heart. Um, If you've ever read or seen the movie by L. Frank Baum, The Wizard of Oz, the, the book is by him, then you know that it is a story of a Kansan girl named Dorothy who gets stuck in a magical faraway land. And wanting to return, she decides to venture out to the palace of the Wizard of Oz, the most powerful wizard in the land who will be able to grant her wish and send her home. Along the way, she meets three friends. They each have a request of the wizard as well, so they join her. And we see them arrive at the palace, and they are granted access 
to the throne room, to the room with the wizard. And when they enter, they're amazed at the splendor of his changing appearances. He appears as a giant head, and then as an ethereal woman, a terrible monster, and finally as a ball of fire. But it's revealed to all be a hoax when they notice a man behind the curtain. And with that man is a lot of heavy machinery that he's working that they realize is creating these magnificent but fake images. This magician proves to not be magic at all. He has no power. He's just a man. Men are going to fail you. When we take a person and idolize them, what we're doing is we are shoving them behind a curtain and worshiping this great but fake image of them. And men are going to fail you, like I said. The things that they promise you and the things that you expect of them are not always going to happen. Jesus is the only one who has the power and character worthy of our worship. So we need to let him be the God of our heart. So the problem arises. How do we do that? How do I let Jesus be the God of my heart? Because as we established a month ago, our hearts are prone to wander. We want these tangible things. And how do we resist that? It's so overwhelming to try to put Jesus above all else in your life all the time. What are we to do? Anybody? Just kidding, I'll tell you. <laughs> the gospel and its good news are never ending. And I think the truth I want us to focus on is that Jesus is already on the throne. He already achieved that victory a long time ago. And no matter what you do, you are not going to lessen or make better that victory. And this issue still remains on a personal level when we ask, how do we make Jesus our Lord, God in our hearts? But the answer is similar. We just need to submit to God's power. Because if we put our faith and hope in Jesus, he'll work on our hearts. He'll help us to overcome that tendency toward idolatry and help us to Put him above all else. There's one last line that I haven't talked about end of verse 6. We are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. And that's our role. It isn't to elect Jesus as the head of the household. He did that without us. It isn't to put him on the throne in heaven. He did that without us. 
It isn't to raise him from the dead. He did that without us. Our role is to hold fast to him and the confidence, the, the boasting, and the hope that we can have in him. You can have confidence in Jesus because he is a better savior than anyone else. Your favorite politicians, your favorite public figures, your family can promise you things, but they are going to fail. Jesus never fails. We can have pride in Jesus because he's a better leader than anyone else. His justice, his mercy, and his love qualify him to be our leader above everyone else. And you can put your hope in Jesus because he is faithful to his promises. And the suffering of this life is not worth comparing to the glory to come. If you have children or if you've ever been a child, then you may know of the children's book called Are You My Mother by P.D. Eastman. I bring up the author because the creator is better than the creation. <laughs> In this book, we see a baby bird that hatches from his egg while his mother is away. And the baby bird decides, I need to find my mother. So he goes on this quest outside of the nest to find, it, find her. He comes upon a cat at first and asks, are you my mother? No response. He comes upon a hen and asks, are you my mother? And the hen says, no. Are you my mother? Are you my mother? Are you my mother? His desperation grows as he asks the question again and again. But the dog, the cow, the car, the boat, the plane, and the tractor all prove to not be his mother. When all his hope is lost, his mother returns, and they are reunited. As humans, our hearts go through a similar process of trying to find our God. We come upon the pleasures of life and we ask, are you my God? We come upon fame, wealth, and we ask, are you my God? We come upon our loved ones and we ask, are you my God? And we come upon influential leaders in our lives and we ask, are you my God? I challenge you today to ask yourselves, who is my God? Who is it that I worship with my time? Who is it that I rely on most? And if the answer to those questions is anybody else, I urge you to consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who's considered worthy of more honor than Moses or anyone else, who is faithful to the one who appointed him as a son in God's household.
hold fast to Jesus and the confidence and the boasting of hope that can be found in him. Let Jesus be the God of your heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we sometimes don't worship you. Sometimes we find other people. We take our family, our politicians, our social media influencers, our celebrities, our mentors, our pastors, and we put them on a pedestal, God. We give them the glory that we owe you. We give them the time that we owe you. God, I pray that you help us to submit to your lordship and to put you above all else. God, sometimes it feels like a fine line. Sometimes we don't know how much time we can give to others. I pray that you will help us to walk that line to always give you the glory. And God, we thank you that this burden is not ours alone, but that you took it upon yourself, God. You didn't ask us to throne you. You throned yourself. I pray that you'll just help us to submit, to hold fast to you and the confidence and the hope that you give us. In your name, amen.